Well, we're in our Life Together series. This is our second installment, and uh, uh, we do this at the start of this term. It's not just a little pep talk to try and get you sign up to a life group. Uh, it's really looking at why do we do community? Why does it matter? Uh, what difference does it make? And last week, Phil did a great job speaking about how church is like a family. Uh, if you want to know a bit more about that, you can listen to that online. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at what does it mean to be uh, united together. We're going to be looking at the subject of unity. What is unity? Um, Why is it important? And how do we build it? And unity was the subject of Jesus' very last words before he went to the cross. Now, if somebody was going to spend a few words, the last few words, giving you instructions, he wouldn't be dilly-dallying around, wouldn't he? He would tell you about what matters most, the most significant thing. Now, what would be the most significant thing on Jesus' mind before he went to the cross? Unity. And this is what he prays in John 17, verse 20. If you've got a Bible or digital device, see if you can find that. John 17, verse 20. So he says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's talking about his disciples, praying for his disciples. He says, I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. Did you know that that's you and me? Jesus at this moment in time is praying for you. That all of them may be one. Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. So that they may be brought through complete unity. And then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays for complete unity. What does complete unity look like? Well, some people think that that means that we've got to get rid of denominations and churches, that we really all should be falling under the same umbrella. But these verses can't really mean that. Because Jesus says, when the world sees this, they will know that the Father has loved them. And structural unity does not show us love. For example, think of a a famous merger, um, Disney and Pixar coming together. No one in the world said, oh, look how they loved one another, right? We just look at the movies they make and think this makes sense, they're a good fit. You see, structural unity doesn't communicate love. Now, the early church communicated love more than anything. Their unity was amazing to the world, and the way it was expressed was a strong promotion of the gospel. Now, what did that look like? We can read through the book of Acts. We've just paused our series on the book of Acts to do a short Christmas series and then our life group series. We're going to be picking that up in a few weeks' time. Um, It looked like sharing stuff together, generosity, sharing possessions, It also meant sharing problems and failure together. You see, the gospel doesn't only change our approach about the things that we have, but also changes the approach we have about the things that we don't have. It says in Galatians that we are to bear one another's burdens. That means that we share our needs. 
It also means sharing truth, speaking the truth in love. People having the courage to speak the truth, yet in a way that communicates love. It's serving each other's interests rather than our own interests. And all of that combined together was a very strong promotion of the gospel. You see, in Acts 6, it talks about how a great number of priests came to faith. Now, you might wonder, why does the Bible mention that? Now, first, the Pharisees, Sadducees, priests, they were, they were really against Jesus. But now that the priests saw what was happening in the community, they were convinced. Now, the priests were tasked with the care of people. And I think the reason why a great number of priests came to faith was that they saw the care amongst the people of faith and also the care that they had for the world around them. And it convinced them. It was the backdrop of their um, uh, community that convinced people about the message. Now you say, why does unity matter? Well, if we go back to the verses that we've just read, we can see that Jesus says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see, unless the world sees a totally devoted, loving and compelling community in the church, they will not believe any of its truths that it seeks to claim. The backdrop of our community validates the message. Now, of course, we need to learn how to articulate the message well, but unless we are part of a community that displays that message, no one's going to be really interested to hear that message. Now, the shocking fact is that the honor of Jesus' name, therefore, is bound up in the quality of our community. Do you get that? The honor of Jesus' name is bound up in the quality of our community. Now, that presents a problem. Do you know any churches with problems? Do you know any churches that has no problems? No such thing exists. At the same time, there's also something positive. If this is what Jesus prays for us, then it means it's also possible. Now, isn't that what we all long for? To be part of a community that truly loves, that truly accepts, and is truly united. Well, how do we get it, you may ask. Let's dive in. The way that we will get unity, usually in our society, is approached by two different ends of the spectrum. The first one is uniformity. If we just all do the same, if we just all look the same and we had no differences, we would all get along really well, wouldn't it? You can sign up for communism if that's your view of the world. That's what we uh, would tend to think, isn't it? If we just eliminate diversity, then we would get on together, wouldn't we? Well, I've got bad news for you. That didn't really work. If you eliminate diversity, that doesn't ultimately mean you create unity. You just create uniformity. The second and opposite approach, probably much more uh, known to us in the West, is that we uh, create liberal tolerance. So that means we embrace that everyone is different and that we promote diversity and we just accept that everyone's right and that uh, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and as long as we accept all of that, then that means that we are united, aren't we? No. That, that practically is not possible unless everyone subscribes to the idea that tolerance is the absolute truth. 
And as soon as you don't agree that tolerance is the absolute truth, guess what? You will require the wrath of everyone who does worship tolerance. And it creates the same problem because you've just created the new absolute. Either an absolute of uniformity or an absolute of tolerance. Neither of those creates true unity. It's a bit like a bad marriage. Um, If one spouse agrees to never bring up the bad things about the other spouse and the other spouse agrees to never bring up anything about the other spouse, you seem to be living in peace because there's never conflict. But it's not unity, is it? There's no deep, meaningful unity. So in one hand, we must have diversity. On the other hand, we must have that being overcome in unity. How does that work? In order to find true unity, we must find a way in which true diversity can exist and yet differences overcome in such a way that true unity remains. How is that possible, you might say? Well, I've also got some good news. You see, this is at the very heart of God himself. This is what we just read. Jesus prays that they may be one as we are one. Who's we? God, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, in the Trinity, there is an absolute miracle, a mystery, where there's three different persons and there's different um, uh, um, ways in which they operate. So they're not all the same. The Father sends and the, uh, sends the Son, and the Son goes and the Son sends the Spirit, and the way that they serve one another, it's different. And yet they are one. Now, how does that work? I guess a lot of theologians have been trying to explain this for many, many, many years, many decades and millennials. It it is hard to put into words, and there's many ways in which you could do that, but one way I found really compelling is the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says, it's like there is a dance within the Trinity, and he describes it like this. He says, the Trinity is utterly different. Instead of self-centeredness, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are characterized in their very essence by mutually self-giving love. No person in the Trinity insists that the others revolve around him. Rather, each of them voluntarily circles and orbits around the others. It's like there is a dance. Neither of the persons within the Trinity put themselves at the center. They serve one another. And together, there's a self-giving love that just continues to flow out. And therefore, there is diversity and unity. And it's this unity and diversity that is the blueprint for human community. When God made man, he made them in his image. And he created everything. And in Genesis, it says that it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And again, come to the sixth day, and he creates man alone. And he says, it's not good. You see, God wanted to create community for mankind in the same way that the Trinity enjoys community. And therefore, he created Adam and Eve to be in deep connection together, two bodies one flesh, it says. And for that way, they reflect the unity within the Trinity in a self-giving way. Now, this is where things went wrong. Because with the fall, we see that each of them start to put themselves at the center. There's no longer a loving relationship with God because mankind resists God. 
And then there is a fraction between mankind, between Adam and Eve, and they start to blame each other, right? Straight away, we can see that there's a a, a change happening. And Luther put it as follows. He says um, that the sinner is the person curved in on himself. And this is what happened at the fall. They become inherently selfish. They no longer look like God. They become inward-looking, self-obsessed, and devilish. That's what the devil is all about. He wants to um, just absorb by his own image. Whereas within God, there's this self-loving, sacrificial way, an outflow, an outgiving. And this is complete destruction. It destroyed our relationship with God, and it destroyed our relationship with one another. Now, all of a sudden, the dance that exists within God and that he invited mankind into um, had, 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 had been distorted. It no longer works. Now, um, I've read a few things about dancing. Um, I don't think I can do much justice about it in practice. Um, but within dancing, uh, the way that dance partners work together is seeking to serve one another. There's one that leads, there's one that follows, but both seek to serve one another. Now, as soon as one of the dance partners starts to be self-centered and wants to draw all the attention, something goes wrong. They no longer serve each other. They don't come to new heights together. Instead, they pull each other down. And that's why if within a dance couple, they don't seek to serve one another, there's going to be a lot of awkward toe-stepping. They're going to get into each other's way. And isn't that just a problem in life? Isn't there a lot of awkward toe-stepping in every friendship, in every relationship, in every community and workplace? Anyone here who's ever been in a meaningful relationship that hasn't experienced somebody stepping on their toe once or twice? That is our problem. You see, unity is what everyone longs for but no one is able to give it. I need your affirmation, and you need my affirmation, but neither of us can truly give it because we are lacking something deep within ourselves. Now, within this COVID season, it's probably become more clear than ever that community in our society really is in breakdown. But it's not COVID that has caused the breakdown in our community. It just highlights the breakdown that already existed. You see, we are all self-bent. We are bent in on ourselves, curved in on ourselves. And therefore, all of a sudden, when there's pressure on, we can see that coming through. Now, COVID did something wonderful for us. It meant that you could go to work without having to step on anyone's toes or anyone stepping on your toes because you just open up Zoom in the morning, you connect, you're half-dressed, you can still be half in your PJs and be in a bad mood, you just smile for half an hour and switch off the screen. We could go to church sitting on our couch. We didn't really have to bother with people. We get Amazon deliveries to our door, binge watch whatever we want. Hallelujah! This is unity, isn't it? All problems solved, wasn't it? It's a little bit like the analogy that Phil used last week when Kevin in Home Alone gets left behind. The first thing that happens is a party. Finally, all those annoying brothers and sisters are gone. Mom and dad are gone. I can do what I want. Stuff my face. Raid the cupboards. Watch whatever I want. This is paradise. 
And then, when the belly ache starts to kick in, he starts to realize, I'm alone. I'm home alone. Now, my friends, this is what's going to be happening within our society. I think the, 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 the little paradise honeymoon is starting to wear off. We start to realize that being isolated means being alone. Now, we can try and stuff that with other things. But the reality is that all of us long to be part of something meaningful. That's why we sit alone on our sofas watching series like Friends. People who belong together, who connect together. And every movie has this sense of belonging. It's wired deep within us. It's a desire we have, but we can't see where we can get it, so we just watch it on television. And my friends, that's not really life, is it? There is true unity available. There is true deepful connection available, including all the toe-stepping with good news. How does it work? Well, some people say if we just sort ourselves out, then that would really solve it. If I become outward looking, if I just start to live the right life and serve other people, then surely community can be created. But no such thing will be the result. You see, if you succeed, you become prideful and you'll start looking down on everyone who doesn't have it together. And if you fail, you become self-loathing. I failed again. Now both pride and self-loathing is still self-centered. It's not truly other serving love. And this is where the gospel comes in. You see, it's impossible for us to become truly self-giving. I need your affirmation, you need mine. As soon as one of us withholds, we have to retreat. What we need is someone who can bring us out of the inward curve to fill our heart with so much love that we become overflowing so we are able to love one another no matter of their behavior to us. And don't you see, friends, that that is what Jesus came to do? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? He left the perfect unity within the Trinity to come and die in our place to be rejected by the Father so we can be made one with God. And to the degree that we understand that love and that grace, we will be able to love one another. You see, if I know that I'm truly accepted, that I'm truly loved, that I've got nothing to prove, I become outward looking, starting to kind of flow out to others. I will be able to understand that I've received something that I didn't deserve and therefore I can love others in the same way. Now how do we receive that? It says in the Bible, in Matthew 10, verse 39, that whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, to receive that life, that gift from Jesus, it requires you to come out of your inward curve. It means that you'll have to lay your life down. Now, I was radically reminded of this in a conversation with my decorator this week. 
we had some decorators come in, and this guy was telling me that he basically uh, nearly died over this last year because he contracted COVID. He ended up in uh, the intensive care unit, and uh, for 12 days, he was on the, on the life machine. He had no control over his own body. And he says, at that moment in time, you start to appreciate life. When you're fully dependent. And he says, after those 12 days, there were two nurses. They came and they, they, they wheeled him into the shower, helped him to have a shower and have a shave and put on clothes. And he said, at that moment in time, I understood generosity and love. They made me feel special. They gave me hope that I could live again. And he says, now I go to the shop and I see someone in an NHS uniform. I just can't help wanting to pay for their shopping because they've given me life. And um, somebody asked me the other day, what would I do if I won the lottery? And I said, I would go and find those two nurses that helped me at that day. And I would give them the money to say, that's how you make me feel on that day. True hope. Now, isn't that what the gospel is like? As Christians, this man has gone through life and death together with the people of the NHS and it's bound them together. As Christians, we have gone through life and death in Christ. We've all died to ourselves. We've been raised to life. And that is what would make us truly generous, patient, kind, and loving to one another. When you realize that you have been on the life machine, that there was no life in you left, and that you received life from another, you will start to appreciate others. And you'll start to appreciate the one who's given you life. And this is what we can see in the early church. They were filled with the love of God, understood the grace that they have received, so much so that it started to flow out over into the way they treated one another. And this is where the local church, our community, is a true demonstration of the gospel. It's when that love starts to flow out to others that the words of Jesus starts to make sense. But it's also a gift from God that we all need because automatically we start to become curved back into ourselves again and even using religion to do it. Do you know why there's so much toe-stepping going on in most churches? Is that they become a way of serving what you need. I go to a church that I like, where they sing songs that I like, where there's people that are like me, where I get to do things that I like doing. My friends, if that's, your, if that's what you're looking for in church, I've got some bad news. You'll be traveling around one church after another until you are old and find that there's no such thing as a church like that. That's not how church community is designed. Church community is designed to be inherently different, where you'll meet people that you don't like, that are different from you. And it's only by the grace of God that you are able to overcome these difficulties and differences and continue to forgive one another and love one another so you get hold of the gospel in your life. The gospel is not something that came to serve you. Jesus laid down his life for you, but unless you come out of the inward curve, you won't be able to experience the life that is within God himself. And that's God's gift to us. That's why you need community. You need some difficult people in your life. You need to get away from just your, 
Zoom meetings and, 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 and kind of distorted reality behind a screen. You need one another. You need real occasions to forgive people, real occasions to accept people. You see, ultimately, this is what true unity is about. It's the grace of God that gives us the opportunity and the grace to forgive one another, to overcome differences, to love one another. Not just those within the church, but even those outside the church. And that, my friends, is true unity. When you are able to love other people with the love that you have received, regardless of what they're at and what they've done to you. That is the seed of true unity. Now, in the same way that a marriage has rhythms and practicalities, so does unity within a community have rhythms and practicalities. When you get married, you start to live under one roof. You merge your, 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 your bank accounts. and You start to create rhythms. You get one diary where you do some planning with. And hopefully you'll get a date night in the diary so you can spend meaningful time together or a family day or go on holidays. You do things together. Uh, you have meals together to communicate and connect together. And there's plenty of opportunities to frustrate one another, but you start to continue to bear with one another. And that is the same true for community within the church. We, we explain the way that we do community at Life Church in different settings. So on Sundays, we sit in rows. It's quite easy because all you're doing is looking at the front, listening to one person and singing songs together, and then you go away again. Um, you could think you lived in community by just attending on a Sunday. Let me tell you, that's not true. We don't meet just in rows, we also meet in circles. That's what we call life groups. And those are opportunities to really do life together, to get your toes stepped onto, to have some difficulties to overcome, to live out the gospel. And then we go out into our lives connecting the dots with other people so we really be able to live out the gospel. And I want to encourage you, we don't just do a life group program because we think it's great and we think you should sign up to help us succeed. We think you need community and one way that we can do community is by doing life groups together. To be intentional to say, I'm going to take one evening or one daytime, one slot in my week where I'm going to devote myself to community. And I want to encourage you to do that. There is no way that you can follow Jesus if there is no opportunity for you to live out the gospel with other people. There is no way that you can truly love God if you don't learn how to truly love one another. That's what Jesus said, right? So this is a way of putting that in your diary. And I want to encourage you to commit yourself to it. On the weeks that you feel like it and on the weeks that you don't feel like it. When it goes great and somebody encourages you, and when somebody steps on your toes and you have to learn to forgive them. That's what community is about, isn't it? That's what we all need. And ultimately, that will then flow over into doing life together. A community that will demonstrate the love of God. And when that works well, my friends, it will become the backdrop of our church. The message that we bring, the gospel itself. And that becomes the way that the world will look and say, see how they love one another. Isn't that amazing? This is what Jesus promises us. And this is what Jesus prayed for us. Why don't we stand together? And why don't we pray that prayer with Jesus? Jesus, we thank you that you laid down your life 
for us, to welcome us in to unity with God. Thank you that you have invited us into the dance of God. Thank you that you prayed for us before you died. The last words, you prayed for unity. Lord, we echo that prayer and we say, Father, will you unite us together as a church? Help us to overcome toe-stepping. Help us to become um, breaking out of the inward curve to learn how to truly love one another. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen.